Bird Cherry Ermine. Garden Tiger Moth. Magpie Moth. Old Lady Moth. Cinnabar Moth. Death's Head Hawk Moth. The Scarce Umber. Elephant Hawk Moth. Dingy Footman. Kentish Glory. Antheria Polyphemus. Eudryas Unio. Pearly Wood Nymph. Foxglove Pug. Cetaceous Hebrew Character. Peach Blossom. Elephant Hawk Moth. The Alder Kitten. Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And hello to all of our regular listeners. And also hello to any new listeners out there. Yeah, we're basically a podcast that talks all about wildlife gardening. It's in the name, isn't it, really? It is indeed, yes. So what have we got coming up on the episode today? Well, if you haven't guessed already from our little introduction, we are talking all about moths. Yes, and what you heard during the intro was, well, Ellie came up with the word for it, mothtage. It was a mothtage made up of some of our listeners sending in their favourite common moth names. Oh my goodness, there are some fantastic ones out there, aren't there? Yeah, well, what was your favourite one? Oh, well, it's the Rusty Tussock. Obviously. I think I said that before, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. I love it. And it's got a fabulous caterpillar as well, to boot. <laughs> but yes, we are talking all about moths and we are going to be discussing what they are, for anyone that doesn't know, and why they're important. I think that's a good one to get across. So we're going to give you some good, hard science, as we do like to do. And also the most important bit, how you can have both a beautiful garden, which is also really great for moths, because the two are not mutually exclusive things. Yeah, we're going to give you some planting and gardening advice for what you can do to encourage moths in to your garden at home. Yes, and we're also going to give you a little bit of news, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to cover some horticultural news, but also a few updates about the podcast. And then at the end, we're going to do our native plant of the week, which this time round is going to be the Viburnum opulus, which many of you will know as the Gelder Rose. Fabulous. So for any new listeners out there, we normally do a little section on all the wildlife that we've seen out and about in people's gardens and in our own garden. But we're not going to give that to you today. We have seen some really good things, but we're going to hold it back just because it's a pretty jam-packed episode already, isn't There's it? There's a lot to talk about moths. There is a lot to talk about moths. And uh, yes, yeah, so I think we're going to move straight on with the news. Our first news section this time round is actually a few bits of news about the podcast. And that is, well, the big one is that we've got over 10,000 downloads now. Woohoo! Thanks, guys. It's amazing. Each episode is an hour long. So that means people have actually listened to 10,000 hours of us blathering on about wildlife, which is just absolutely amazing. And in fact, we were going to talk about this in the last episode. We're already nearly at 12,000 now, so the numbers are going up pretty fast and we're just so thankful for everybody who's tuning in yeah thank you so much guys and and also for all of you getting in touch to reassure us that what we're doing is what you want to hear as well because we've had some lovely emails and a couple of facebook messages from people and it's just really heartening to know that well we're we're enthusing others to do things for wildlife in in your own gardens yeah that's really really nice to hear yeah fabulous we've actually taken on a new project as well we've set up a youtube channel and it's called The Wild GDN. You can go and search it. And we've only got one video on there at the moment. And actually, that is the, the Q&A that we did um, a couple of weeks ago. We were meant to release that as an episode, but somebody wah, 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 forgot to press <laughs> record separately to YouTube. But you can go and watch it live on the channel. Link will be in the show notes. In that video, we gave answers to some of the questions that you've had over the last couple of months. But we're also going to use that channel to demonstrate some of the things we talk about on the podcast and we're going to transform an allotment that we've just taken on it's so brand new we don't have the keys yet we're getting the keys next week we're going to transform this allotment into a wildlife garden yeah and we are basically taking you on the whole journey and i imagine the first few episodes are going to be just me and ben arguing about where the pond should go if we just like work so apologies <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, you all think we get on, but behind the scenes, oh no. (laughs) 
Or actually, we just argue in front of our clients a lot of the time. <laughs> oh, they, they do like it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's mildly entertaining. Yeah. But anyway, um, yes, we're going to take you through the whole process because at the moment it is a thistle patch, which doesn't phase us one bit. In fact, it's, well, we need to actually do an assessment as to what wildlife is on it. That's really yep. important. And, and then we're going to take you through the design and all through the muddy digging over this winter, which I cannot wait for. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's completely wild at the minute and I love it. And yeah, it's just going to be great to get in there. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be using the YouTube channel to bring you along for the ride with that, really. We have one other idea as well, though, haven't we, which we wanted to put out there. And this is more of a question. And so please do get in touch if you would be interested in this. Yes, we won't do this unless you actually write into us and tell us you want it. Yes, we. So yesterday we went to Gardeners World Live this is on Saturday and we had such a fantastic day. And because I think most gardeners, they just love visiting other gardens as well, like us. It's a bit of a busman's holiday, but we love it. Um, and while we were there, we were wondering whether or not people would be up for basically meeting us there when we're at a, a different garden across the UK. Yeah, the idea is that we would visit maybe one garden per season, you know, a spring, summer, autumn, winter garden. And, you know, when we say winter gardens, you know, in terms of wildlife, you can plant up a winter garden. So it's got, you know, pollen and nectar really really early in the season and it's great to actually come visit a garden that well gives you ideas on how to do that yeah yeah uh, i remember specifically we went and visited the cambridge botanic garden a couple of years ago and it has such a fantastic winter garden in the middle of what was it january or february yeah, when yeah. we were there it was in full bloom absolutely stunning yeah with all the they had loads of daphne um different types jacqueline postel is one i found there it was just great big stands of it and it smelt just gorgeous it was so nice so basically what we thought is we can't we just don't have the capacity to organize proper tours and things but maybe we could just say hey we're going to be at this garden at this time you know if you just want a social just a chance to meet people and have a natter then meet us there and we'll just all walk around together and that's it really yeah fab it's a social for us really isn't it yeah exactly. it'd be fun <laughs> yeah so if you do get in touch with us and say that's something you'd be interested in doing then we'll we'll look to organize that Definitely. And also, while we were at Gardeners World Live, we'll just give a little shout out to another gardening podcast. And that is the Talking Heads podcast by Lucy and Saul, who we did meet yesterday, didn't we? At Gardeners yeah, World. they were the plant expert stall, weren't they? Oh, they're so lovely. And their podcast really is fantastic as well. We've loved listening to it. Yeah, it's we... called the Talking Heads podcast. And they're, they're, both of them are head gardeners. So yeah, we just thought we'd mention it because if you're, we know quite a few professional gardeners actually listen to our show and people who run nurseries and things. And yeah, they give really great advice. So if you are a professional gardener and you want um, something to listen to, then the Talking Heads podcast is a great one and we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, not just for professional gardeners as well. I think lots of people would find it interesting. So yeah, give it, give it a try, definitely. So on to the real horticultural news. You might have heard about the latest IPCC report, the latest climate change report, which is pretty sobering reading, really. The RHS have decided to respond to it, and especially considering that this year the COP26 conference is going to be in Glasgow, they've decided to have a climate change garden at Chelsea Flower Show. Mm, yeah, the COP26 garden. Yeah, in the name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we don't have tickets to go to Chelsea. Uh, we'd love to go and see it. But if you do have tickets, yeah, I really recommend going and checking it out. Checking it out and then why not feed back to us as well? Be our little reporter. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to hear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, hopefully we'll see it on the BBC, I guess. But they, uh, you know, reading the RHS statement about it, they said that they're going to try and show some of the things that you can do in a garden to mitigate the effects of climate change and adaptations that you might need to make in your planting and things like that as well. And then what you can do to to help create a space for wildlife that is resilient to yeah. the pressures of climate change too all very very important things and so important that we are actually going to do an episode i think on climate change and gardening and how, and how it's going to affect what we do in our own gardens because yeah we can actually already see the species changes in terms of wildlife although it's not a it's not a clear-cut picture is it because some species are thriving and, and certainly moving and other species are very much uh 
not so yeah. <laughs> um so yeah it's a bit of a a bit of a a mixed bag of uh impact isn't it overall it's a very bad thing but mm. then if you're say a dragonfly that is now able to colonize mainland britain from europe then you've got an expansion in your range so that's okay for them so yeah it's re- it's really interesting stuff but um yeah. yeah we will do a whole episode on it for sure and um speaking of future episodes we have been asked by many people to do a specific episode on composting and we will do in the future in fact in the q a that is on youtube we covered quite a bit about composting as well but garden organic have got a really good upcoming event about compost haven't they they have so this thursday that's the 2nd of september between 6 and 7 p.m they're doing a free webinar and that is all about peat-free growing everyone should be using peat-free compost now but for some people it's a very new thing and it is something you actually have to get used to so garden organic have yeah taken the initiative to give lessons on it essentially and also i think it's going to reassure a lot of people that what they're doing is the right thing and just to give them a bit a few tips as to how to get the best out of it so I think the actual whole webinar does include the impact of peat extraction on the environment. So that's the background of why we're actually using peat-free composts, how they're made, which I think I'd find quite interesting in a geeky way. And as I said, how to get the most out of them and also how to make your own peat-free potting mixes as well, because that is essentially the best thing you can do. Yeah, that's home. really interesting to know. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I think that would be a really good webinar to get involved. Yeah, when did you say that was? That is on Thursday, the 2nd of September, starting at 6pm. Brilliant. We'll put links to that in the show notes as well. So with the news covered, let's move on to our topic for this week. I'm going to start by saying that when you get into moths it is like being a kid in a sweet shop and that sweet shop has two and a half thousand types of sweets (laughs) (laughs) now i'm not advocating eating them no (laughs) (laughs) probably a rubbish analogy but anyway we'll we'll carry on move swiftly on no it's just a fantastic topic and i certainly have been very excited about doing this and we often spend whole evenings, because we're so cool, uh, on the Butterfly Conservation or the Moths UK pages online. Yeah, looking... there are long evenings if you're a gardener. <laughs> In the winter, yeah. Work finishes at 3pm when it gets dark. Yeah. So we need we have to fill it with something. And we just like looking at the huge variety and, and beauty of these creatures. It is phenomenal. Yeah, in fact, we've actually just got a new book for moth id as well haven't we and there's loads of facebook groups that you can go and visit too so yes but rather than just suffusing about them which believe me we could fill an entire hour with we wanted to bring you some of the hard science behind them so what exactly are moths now sometimes these obvious questions are not asked because people think of course i know what a moth is but i wouldn't have been able to really answer unless without doing the research for this uh episode so i'm going to go ahead and tell you what moths are (laughs) yeah and the more you try and think about it the trickier it is to define isn't it it's one of those yes now they sit in the insect order known as lepidoptera which is also where we find the butterflies and in fact there is not really that much difference between moths and butterflies. They are the same thing. It's just that we've given a little bit of a distinction to the two different groups. And I'll go into that in a second. But in terms of evolution, moths are much, much older. And there are moth fossils in existence that are over 190 million years old. Yeah, incredible. Very, very old. They've, they've been, been around. around a, they've been around a long time. They have time. been, yes. Now, I think in terms of the distinction between butterflies and moths, most people think of them as a sort of night-loving butterfly. But as well as the nocturnal species, there are also crepuscular species. Nice word. Thank you very much. One of my favourites. It means it flies early in the morning or at dusk. So those two periods. Twilight time. Twilight. And also diurnal species, which is your day-flying moths. And in the UK, we have about, as I said, two and a half thousand species of moth. Whereas with the butterflies, you only get 59. So you can decide which is more exciting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they very much dominate the group, don't they, with, with that number. So whether butterfly or moth, all Lepidoptera have four scale-covered wings. And in fact, the Lepidoptera, the word, comes from ancient Greek, like, like a lot of our scientific names. And it's broken down into Lepis, which is scale, and 
pteron with a silent P at the beginning, which just means wing. And just like the butterflies, moth wings really do often have beautiful markings or amazing camouflage. For example, one of the best camouflage moths that I can think of is the buff tip. Which is insanely well camouflaged. (laughs) You've got to look this one up because it looks exactly like a snapped silver birch twig. It's got brown, light brown on both ends, the same colour as the wood inside a, a, a silver birch twig and then in between it's got silver birch bark yeah yeah it's just absolutely amazing but no more fusing ben come on <laughs> more facts no we are we are going to put links up to at least the moss we talk about and mention just as a starter and that's only going to be a handful compared to the two and a half thousand don't worry we're not going <laughs> to yeah. aim for any more than that but yes one slightly fuzzy way of distinguishing them from the butterflies is that butterflies tend to have thin antennae with a little club on the end so if you think of a child's drawing of an insect with antennae that tends to be what they draw yeah or mine i didn't want to say but you know <laughs> your drawing is getting better ben but moth antennae are often feathery some really are incredible they look like a feather like they're just insane and one that i really urge you all to check out is the muslin moth because that is a really good example of that's this muslin feathering. like the fabric isn't yes, it? yes like a muslin and a moth and they use these antennae to detect pheromones which is essentially the scent that is given off by one of the sexes to attract mating and some of them can detect from miles away my, my favorite actually well the rusty tussock the the males can detect pheromones from up to six miles away with their antennae. Isn't that mad? So the adult stage is the flying insect, which are extremely varied in size and in patterning and in colour. And it's certainly one of the main reasons why I love them. They're just amazing. But it's also really important to know that some species, the females actually don't have wings and they're flightless. And I quite like this strategy in terms of finding a mate. They basically just sit there and waft some pheromones around (laughs) and then their mates have to come to them. Sounds great. (laughs) anyway moving on (laughs) yes no they actually well the the rusty tussock the female we found one we found a couple (laughs) haven't we in wisteria they seem to love wisteria they do actually and they they do just look like fuzzy blobs they just the body part of a moth but quite fat with no wings whatsoever and they're always next to their eggs which they'll have just laid but really fascinating definitely look that one up So whether flying or flightless, once the females of any species have mated successfully, they will lay eggs on or near their larval food plant. And we talk so much about larval food plants. And just in case anyone doesn't know what we mean, it's exactly what it says on the tin again. And it's basically the plants which the larval stage will be eating. Yeah. And in the moths, like the butterflies, we call the larval stage caterpillars. Indeed. Once the eggs hatch into the caterpillar, which is the name given to the larval stage of a moth, the caterpillar will basically just eat and eat and eat and eat until it's had enough. Until it's full. Very hungry caterpillar style. There's a reason why that book was made. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When they've had their fill, they usually form a protective cocoon around themselves. And at this stage, they are known as the pupa. And they come in all sorts of shapes, sizes and colours, depending on the species of moth, obviously. And this is just the protective cocoon that the caterpillar will be essentially morphing into the adult stage again the flying adult it's so fascinating how something can start off in one form and end up so different i just my it boggles my mind really when it's ready to do that and that is usually at the con- when the conditions are right so at the right time of year the right temperature the adult will then emerge from that pupae and start the cycle all over again the timing of that whole life cycle is really dependent on species, as you can imagine. And it often relates to the caterpillars needing their food plants that are usually quite specific to be at a certain stage of growth. Yeah, because some of the caterpillars will eat leaves. In fact, most of them will be eating a leaf as their their main food. But some that we've covered on the podcast before, like the campion moth, I think their larval stage eats the seeds of red campion so obviously that's not when the campion is fresh into growth the campion actually needs to have already flowered and been pollinated to produce those seed heads and you know that's what the the caterpillars of that particular species will eat so it's very highly tuned to a certain time of year exactly and also as for the adults in general 
they tend to require warmish temperatures to actually be flying. And that's why you do tend to see more moths out and about between spring and summer. Yeah, for sure. Certainly when they sort of flap into my face when I'm in the garden. However, again, just to complicate things, there are such moths as the night flying winter moth and also the December moth. And as their name suggests, they are actually adapted to fly in the wintertime and sometimes in temperatures that are sort of close to zero degrees, which is phenomenal for such a small flying insect to cope with. I certainly can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Those two cold loving species aside, A lot of the moths that do fly in the spring and summer tend to overwinter and they effectively hibernate. But I have a technical klaxon, which we still need to get, don't we, Ben? Yeah. (laughs) And it's not hibernating they're doing. It's actually something called diapausing. And it's essentially like a state of arrested development. Yeah, yeah. So the difference between a hibernation, if you imagine, I don't know, a dormouse or something like that hibernates. Mm. it's the adult so it's the fully formed animal is hibernating right but in diapause it's an inter it's not an intermediate stage but say the pupa is the adult developing isn't it mm-hmm. right so the adults developing inside that cocoon so it's diapause because it's not actually hibernating it's just stopped that development temporarily waiting for the weather to change for it to complete that development and come out as the adult. Exactly. And the way some species get through winter, this is really fascinating, they actually make their own antifreeze. And this is usually in the form of glycerol. Now, glycerol lowers the freezing point of their blood. So by having more of it, then they can just survive those colder temperatures. Others tend to hide away which is certainly what I like to do in winter. And that is either as the caterpillar or it might be as the egg or the pupae. And they do this in a range of different places depending on the species. So for the case of the scarlet tiger moth or the buff ermine, you might find them in the leaf litter hunkering down. For angle shades, that's another really fantastic name for a moth, uh, you might find them buried underground where it's just going to be a little bit warmer and more sheltered from the the ambient temperature, the air temperature outside. That's as a caterpillar, that one, isn't it? That is as a caterpillar. Or you might also find them at the base of tussocky grasses. And they are really fantastic habitats. We've talked loads about grasses before, but if you can just let a little wild patch of grass just grow up and not mow it and not clear anything away, then that is a really, really great place for things to shelter from the cold weather also they will often be found on the underside of trees and also shrub branches because obviously as we all say plants are really fantastic places for creatures to hide interestingly though there's actually one moth that kind of does a bit of everything and hedges its bets and that is the brimstone moth and this is a really really common moth that you are very likely to have in your gardens we did this year didn't we we didn't get close to it but i saw it flying it flying off and it is really an unmistakable moth bright yellow and it's got sort of a couple of brown sort of splodges on it yeah first year we had it wasn't it this year it was was the first year we've noticed it and the adults as i say they're really common but the adults fly between april and october so it's a really long season that you might see one as well But when the temperatures drop, it really does need to hunker down. And it does this either as a caterpillar, literally attached to its food plant, which in the case of the brimstone is very common garden trees like rowan and blackthorn and hawthorn. Or it might be as a pupa held on the food plant as well. Or you might also find both the caterpillar and the pupae in the leaf litter beneath the food plants or even in cracks in fences or walls nearby. So, yeah. It's, it's got its bases covered, that moth. I think that's enough on what moths are. Hopefully you can all answer that question in uh, when your very interested family and friends ask about them. Yeah, I've definitely got a better idea. Excellent. That's good to know. But... We don't want to just tell you what they are and what you can do for them. We also want to let you know why you need to do something for them or why it's good to do something for them. And it's not just because they're all round good guys. I mean, they are amazing, but there are other reasons. And the sad truth is that their numbers are in really steep decline, like lots of things. And there is such a thing as the RIS Light Trap Network. 
and that is the Rothamsted Insect Survey. And it's the largest of its type in the whole world. And it's a series of light traps that are just all over Britain and they've been recording data on moths for such a long time now. Over the last 50 years, this network has shown a a drop in abundance of moths of 33%. Yeah, and we should say that that's the larger moths, what we call macro moths. Oh, I didn't mention that, did I? Yeah, so out of the 2,500 species of moth, you get about 850, 60, which are known as the macro moths. And then the rest, some of them are really tiny, but there's, there's basically every size in between, isn't there? But yeah. It's about 850, 60 of the macro moths. And that's what this this survey was looking at. And losses were also greater in the southern half of Britain, where there was a 39% decrease, than in the northern half, where there was a 22% decrease. But overall, just really terrible news for moths. Yeah, and actually 51 species have gone extinct since 1900 haven't they which makes me really sad because that's 51 species that i can't ogle on the moss uk website yeah i don't know what they look like but i'm very sad for them yeah if you do want to know more about that go and look up the state of moths report which was released this year 2021 and you can look at that on the butterfly conservation website and of course links to that will be in the show notes too if moth numbers also decline it also has a huge knock-on effect on ecosystems overall. And that's because moths are a veritable all-you-can-eat buffet for such a huge range of wildlife. Yeah, Yeah, amphibians like frogs, toads, lizards, small mammals such as shrews, hedgehogs, and of course bats, that's another very obvious one. And also birds will happily eat adult moths. They're just there for the taking for all these species and without them it would have a huge knock-on effect on all of them and in terms of the garden birds like the blue and the great tits the robins uh, the wrens and the blackbirds really all rely very very heavily on caterpillars of all shapes and size- sizes to feed to their young chicks yeah yeah really vital especially in the spring Exactly. And so timing is everything with this, isn't it? And also, interestingly, cuckoos. So we were very lucky to hear our first cuckoos this year. Yeah, for the first time. Exactly. Beautiful. They've actually evolved specifically to be able to eat the otherwise very, very unpalatable hairy caterpillars. For example, that of the garden tiger. And that's another one you should look up. It's like a, a a big brown bear it's just amazing (laughs) doesn't look very palatable but the cuckoo can cope with it and indeed likes it and yeah the cuckoo is obviously a species that is very much declining so it could be it could well be because of the decline in its food source and aside from all the nice fluffy things that we just mentioned the big animals a lot of our parasitoid wasps also really rely on caterpillars for their young too and yeah it's a bit gruesome Oh, it's it's wonderful. It really is like alien. And it's also really important to not forget that adult moths are really valuable pollinators because we always, everyone knows to protect the bees and the butterflies. But, you know, butterflies and moths are the same thing. So why shouldn't moths also be fantastic pollinators? Yeah, and there's a lot of quite new research coming out on this, actually. I was really interested to find out how important they are. Yeah, so several studies have actually shown that moth pollen transport networks are so much larger and more complex than the networks for the daytime pollinators. And moth pollination falls into... Oh, some good words coming up here. But moth pollination falls into two camps. I'm ready. (laughs) Sphingophily. Oh, that's a good one, which is pollination by hovering moths of the Sphingidae family. And that includes our native hummingbird hawk moth and also Phalaenophily, which is the pollination by the settling moths of other families. Basically, some of them flap at the entrance and they have these really long tongues which come out and stick down the flower and then others have to actually land and, and crawl into the flower. Yeah, and it's really interesting to know about these two different types of pollination by moths as well because research has traditionally sort of only focused on the pollen that is on the proboscis of of moths and actually the pollen that may be attached to the chest of the moth by the ones that settle and land on the flowers doesn't tend to be recorded as much so we might actually be massively under recording the importance of moths when it comes to pollination and again science is is working towards getting a better understanding of this pretty much as we speak isn't it yeah that's right and along with some recent work using dna analysis 
on this pollen rather than looking at pollen that they find and, and looking at it using a microscope. We now know actually that moths visit a really, really wide variety of plants. Yeah, including garden species like hydrangea, verbena, polymonium, that surprised me, and also our garden favourite, Budlia. Yeah, which which makes sense because the, the butterflies go for Budlia big time, don't they? Yes, exactly. And of course, along with the garden plants, there's loads of wildflowers that they'll go and visit things from particularly from the rosaceae and fabiaceae family and some others as well so that includes things like the white clover that you might find in your lawn or the fennel in your veg plot or the brambles and hawthorn that you find in your hedge as well the flowers of all of them are absolutely loved by moths so now we know what they are we know why they're important we know what they eat and we know what eats them so what can we all do when we're out gardening in our own plots to help them first one is don't spray put down the pesticide bottle standard advice now isn't it yeah i keep hearing advice to avoid spraying like it's some kind of uncontrollable instinct of humanity if you kill off the caterpillars in your garden you're potentially killing off the moths and butterflies they'll emerge into which is why it's really important to know about those life cycles that we discussed earlier and and also by doing that you're cutting off and poisoning the food source of a lot of other species as well so if you see a, a nibble in your leaf of a plant that you love just don't panic about it and certainly don't spray it yeah you don't have to do nothing if you're growing cabbages or whatever protect them you know yes you don't have to let everything (laughs) eat the stuff that you want to keep but just don't use pesticides and the second thing that you can do is all around in fact we're coming up to the right time of year to be talking about this it's how you deal with the fallen leaves from trees in and around your gardens Because as I said, a lot of moths, but also a lot of the butterflies, pupate in that nice squishy and warm leaf litter, usually over the winter. So when we come along with our petrol blowers and we put it all in the bin, we may really unwittingly be throwing out the next generation of moths at the same time. we certainly are. Yeah, we certainly are, exactly. So what we do in pretty much all the gardens we work in, actually, is we will blow some into the borders mostly to the back of borders and under hedgerows is a really good place to keep the the fallen leaves as well. As long as they're not deep enough to be completely smothering plants, which might well rot with the damp, because obviously the, the, the rotting leaves will be creating this really nice damp conditions. Yeah, yeah that's right then it's all great worm food. And in fact, some of the borders that we've spread leaves out are doing the best. And certainly over dry periods in, in early spring, they just look much healthier for it. Yeah, it's worth saying that we've actually got a blog on our website all about how to deal with leaf litter. And yes, we actually we put have. a little document together, didn't we, about the different things you can do in different situations. Exactly. So yeah, head over to there if you want it written down and in more detail. If you also have a compost bin, in fact, if you don't, why not? <laughs> <laughs> then why not put, obviously, the, the excess leaves into your compost bin? Or even better, if you have the space, make a simple leaf litter pile. And that will not only provide you with wonderful leaf mould when it's rotted down, that does take a little while. It's also a really great habitat for those overwintering moths and butterflies. But also, you might even be lucky enough to get a hedgehog living in there and also reptiles and amphibians. And as well as the fallen leaves from trees, we're also very much talking about the standing stems of grasses and other herbaceous plants within your borders. Don't be afraid of things being dry, crispy and brown. Brown isn't a colour to be afraid of. No, not over the winter when things are frosty and lovely anyway. Yeah, if you've got something lovely like an echinacea that's standing upright, then just leave those seed heads over the winter and they're really good sheltered places for other things to hide, particularly your moths. In at number three... We're going to talk about hedges and what you could be doing to them to help moths. So we did a specific episode on hedges, actually, and the reasons why everyone should aim for a hedge instead of a fence, for sure. And in that episode, Ben also talked about how to change the way you cut your hedge to benefit any creatures that it might be using it to shelter in. So if you have a large hedge, and if it's appropriate to do so, you could look to cut it on maybe a rotor of a number of years. Divide it into three or four different sections. Yes. For example, if there's a section where you could leave the long shoots of that year's growth uncut, you might well 
then be benefiting the moths who have laid their eggs on the stems, as I said before, yeah, or the pupae they, or the caterpillars. That they're are... literally attached to that new growth. So when you go and cut it all off, it just disappears. Exactly. And the idea is that you go back to cutting that section in maybe the following year, but then leave a different section uncut. Alternatively, if you really can't be leaving your hedge, maybe it's growing completely over a path and you can't get past or whatever, or a public path, then if you do have to cut stems off, why not try and leave a loose pile of hedge clippings as habitat piles underneath the hedge? Because then things at least have a chance of sheltering in amongst the, the cut off stems, but they may be able to crawl back up and and be back on the food plant ready for spring. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice idea. The fourth thing we've identified as things that you could do in your own garden. Now, a while ago, we mentioned Naughty Allen. Naughty Allen. Very naughty. And that is artificial light at night. Sorry if you're called Allen. We're not uh, (laughs) vindicating you in any way. And artificial light at night has been implicated in loads of different negative impacts to moth behaviour from reduced egg laying to disturbed release of the pheromones which are used to attract mates in and also lower caterpillar numbers and of course as we already said that has a huge knock-on effect to other wildlife yeah and you just don't think about these potential impacts because how else would you know unless you've gone ahead and and read that scientific paper about it the large-scale effects are unclear it's not exactly understood how big an effect um, this artificial light is having at a landscape scale but certainly in the garden, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry, isn't it, really? Yeah. You know, just turn your lights off when you go to bed. <laughs> yeah. It's quite simple, really. Yeah. Or have them on a timer and tell them to turn off at 11 o'clock or whatever. Yeah, switch them off, guys. And the fifth tip that we have is one that we just love to say a lot. Plant more plants. Yeah. <laughs> the more plants... It's our motto. It is our motto. The more plants you have in your garden, the more biodiversity you'll attract. And that obviously includes moths. So as we said before, moths particularly like the night-scented plants such as Nicotiana and the honeysuckles and also the jasmines. But more and more research is, as we've said, showing the huge range of plants they will visit. You don't just need to plant these classic night scented plants although they are really fabulous obviously go ahead and do so moths will be visiting other plants though yeah that's right we just don't know how many plants they visit so it's safe to assume that it's a lot more than we actually know now yeah and the more plants you got the more variety you've got to go around for everyone yeah and everything if you do want more ideas on particularly the night scented plants i do check out our previous episode on that And yeah, having more plants is not only a food source for the caterpillars and the moths, but also you're just going to be creating a much denser cover of vegetation, which is really great for the overwintering stages. And of course, the final thing to consider is the native versus non-native thing. And there is a lot of evidence to say now that some caterpillars will very much eat the non-native near relatives of native plants. For example, a really well-known and well-documented one is the elephant hawk moth and its caterpillar does eat the fuchsia. We've indeed found it on on and around fuchsias in different gardens, whereas it would normally be eating the willow herb and the two are actually related, the plants. However, it's also been shown through the Plants of Bug study done by the RHS that native does have the edge in yeah, terms it's got of, a slight edge. It's got yeah. a slight edge. So if you really want to be benefiting the caterpillars, so you're then getting more moths in your garden, then have more native plants in amongst your borders. And that is indeed why we give our native plant of the week, isn't it? Because yeah. we've got some really beautiful plants in the UK. So those are the five top tips that we are suggesting will very much help benefit moths but i think the main message is that everyone did just some or even one of those things then over the whole of the uk us gardeners really could boost the populations of our moth species it really does all help and if you're really interested in this we do have lots and lots of links in the show notes not only to the species but also some of the studies that we've read to inform this episode yeah go ahead and check out the show notes in your podcast app Well, thanks, Ellie. And now we know all about moths. We're going to give a shout out to some of the people who've left us reviews on iTunes and elsewhere about the podcast in what we call our 60 seconds of (laughs) self-congratulation. So let's roll the music. Let's go. 
Gailey P says, I found my people. What a wonderful podcast, Gardening and Wildlife, my idea of heaven. Fantastic, useful information delivered in such a relaxed manner. I love it. Red Robin Manchester said, informative, fun, honest and very well produced. Please keep up the good work and keep going with this. Neil from the UK Wildlife Podcast. Uh, Hi, Neil. Neil. Says, brilliant, excellent podcast, entertaining presenters and has even got me to do more stuff in the garden, growing seeds of wildlife-friendly plants. Nice one. Teller19 says, I really enjoy this podcast as you can really understand what's happening with our natural world. It's a cheerful, informative podcast which I would highly recommend. Well done, both of you. Thank you very much. Lulu Foxtail says, golden nugget it's galore i dug up a section on my lawn in my small garden a couple of years ago and have been doing my best to impress the bees and butterflies ever since i've loved discovering some golden nuggets in this wonderful podcast and now i have all kinds of little projects in mind for the destruction of more of my lawn Hooray! yay beetle bank and pond here we come thank you so much ellie and ben for brightening my days while stuck at my computer editing photos also many thanks and bobbles the toad fred the frog eric pickles the hedgehog and hugo the prat cat they all appreciate the little changes i've already started to make thank you very much everybody that is wonderful. And I particularly love Eric Pickles, the hedgehog. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Leaving a review really helps us get into the ears of new listeners. So if you would like to leave us one, you can do that on iTunes or on Podbean, which is our podcast host. If you want to leave something on iTunes, you don't need to have an Apple product. You just need to be able to log in online. And of course, if you want to just get in touch more generally, then you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are twitter.com forward slash thewildgdn. Or if you prefer to send us an email, send it to thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. Right now on to the native plant of the week. And this time we're talking about the Viburnum opulus. And opulus actually is the old name for a kind of maple tree, which will make sense if you've ever seen the leaves. But it's more usually known as the Gilda Rose. It does have some older names like Dogberry or Water Elder, which have been used too. Never heard those before. No. And if you haven't seen it, I'm going to give it a brief description. So it's a hardy, deciduous and woody shrub that can it can kind of make the size of a small tree really and we've grown it both as a shrub and as a tree Um, so if you allow it to grow to its full size it can get up to about five meters tall and four meters across Um, and when the stems get older the bark turns into a really nice sort of stripy color with gray and sort of a deep rusty brown as well it has green leaves and like a maple it's got these three lobes to it and the leaves themselves are serrated on the edges and they can be a bit hairy underneath too. But one of the reasons it's grown is because of the leaves and that's that in the autumn and into the winter, these leaves turn into an absolutely amazing vibrant red before falling off. And it's just such a glorious, glorious shrub to have in your garden. But it's also grown for its stunning lace cap-like heads of white flowers in June and July. And if any of you have seen a lace cap type hydrangea, they're very similar to that. And each of these flowers can get to around 10 centimetres across, but they will be larger in some of the cultivars as well. And the flowers, if pollinated, are followed by striking glossy red berries up to about a centimetre long, which can remain on the shrub all winter. And they just look absolutely glorious in the winter frosts. I saw a lot left on the shrubs in various hedgerows just this winter when, you know, when it got really cold in April, they were still hanging around and it really does. They're, They're beautiful. They look like a cartoon of a berry. So the distribution of Gilderos extends right through northern eastern and central europe into central asia russia and turkey Um, but it's not actually found much around the borders of the mediterranean it doesn't like being by the sea in the uk it is common throughout ireland in england and wales but it's actually less frequent in scotland so it's been found up to about 400 meters above sea level in a place called carrigill in cumbria in the caucasus mountains it's actually been found up to about 2300 meters above sea level Though in the UK, it's actually generally found as a plant of damp places on either neutral or chalky soils alongside riversides, uh, maybe in fens where it can grow alongside alder and willows, um, in moist scrub or grassland and also as a hedgerow plant and that's where we see it most often. Although of course now it's 
because it's beautiful it's actually been planted widely all the way around the country in gardens and parks as well so it's found much beyond its its actual natural range now but it's also really attractive to wildlife and so now we're going to talk about the flowers in our section on its sexual antics so viburnum opulus the Gelder Rose is an outcrossing hermaphrodite and that means it prefers to be pollinated by another plant, usually via a hoverfly or a beetle, which are the two main pollinating insects, although self-pollination is actually possible. The flowers are made up of two parts. They have a central fertile flower and an outer sterile flower arranged like an umbel so an umbel is a sort of flower that you would see on an elder perhaps but properly in this case this umbel is known as a compound syme and we actually haven't had anybody write in to say if it's supposed to be syme or syme we're not actually sure Time. on the pronunciation <laughs> it's a, again we always say it's the sort of thing when you learn botany from books you never know if you're saying it right please do tell us by the way if you know the answer but anyway this compound syme is where the individual flowers are held on stalks that are in a sort of a branched fashion. So if you imagine the branches of stems off a tree trunk, it looks sort of like that. The fertile flowers, so these are the flowers that are in the middle, have yellow petals. And the stamen, which is the male organ, is twice as long as the petals. So it actually sticks out of the flower. And it has yellow anthers, which hold the pollen. The female organ is lower down in the flower though and has a three-lobed stigma. But these sterile flowers on the outside are actually much larger and they're pure white, giving the whole flower the look of a a lace cap type hydrangea, which is like the serrata types of hydrangea. And it's thought that the sterile flowers are basically there as an extra attraction to flying pollinators. Somehow they sort of capture the eye of of passing insects and, and lure them in. But... One study I read showed that they actually removed these sterile flowers around the the fertile flowers in the middle. And if you removed the sterile flowers, it didn't actually make any difference to how much of the uh, the umbel was pollinated and then subsequently how much turned into fruit. I've always wondered about studies into the adaptation of plants to be more attractive to humans because those bigger flowers we may well just be thinking that they're so beautiful because they are bigger. So maybe the sterile flowers are encouraging us to plant them. Yeah, well, now we plant them all the time. So it's worked on us, isn't it? We're doing its job for it of propagation. Exactly. More science required. (laughs) It does actually, though, have an extra trick up its sleeve to attract pollinators in the form of what are called extra floral nectaries. Nectaries are the parts of flowers that produce nectar, it's in the name, but sometimes they can be found elsewhere on plants. And in the case of Viburnum opulus, these extra floral nectaries can be found on the leaf itself or on the leaf stalk. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's something that we've seen in other shrubs. One really good example of this is the cherry laurel. Now, I am not a big fan of the cherry laurel. And in fact, as a hedging plant, I think it's just a terrible, terrible choice. Sorry to anybody out there who's just planted loads of cherry laurel. But one thing I have noticed, and this is happening right now, in the, certainly in the last month or so, in one of our clients' gardens, they've got a big row of this cherry laurel next to a lawn. And when I go past and mow the lawn, you can see thousands and thousands of bees, hoverflies, wasps, all hovering around this hedge. Now, I couldn't really clock why they were there. But again, this cherry laurel has these extra floral nectaries. So what they're going after is the nectar on the leaves or actually coming out of the stem where these nectaries are. So there is a really, really good benefit for pollinators in that sense. And I'm sure that that's going to be helping to attract them in. But once pollination has occurred, the flowers produce these glorious red fruits and the fruits are called a droop which means it's a single hard seed uh, surrounded by that that sticky flesh. So that's true for loads and loads of different fruits. Most of the berries that we eat are, are actually a droop. 
And each of these flower clusters, these compound cymes, can hold around 10 fruits and each stem on the plant has many of these flower clusters. And so when you actually see one of these fully grown plants in full flower and in full fruit, just the sight of these sort of ruby red jewels all over the outside of it is just really stunning. Yeah, and they're really, really good for wildlife as well, aren't they? Yeah, well, a lot of those berries are just absolutely loved by loads of different species because, of course, they're a fantastic fruit. So a whole host of birds over the winter go for them, particularly the missile thrush, the bullfinch, and actually the waxwings too. Ooh, a waxwing. That's that's on my tick list for this year. Mice and things like bank voles as well will take fruit that fall onto the floor. And the flowers themselves are, of course, loved by loads of the pollinators. So things like bees including this short fringed mining bee and the common carder have been found pollinating and feeding from the flowers of viburnum opulus but also several of the eristalis hoverflies and even the small tortoiseshell butterfly but as we have been talking all things moth in this episode we've got to cover some moths that like it as well the leaves have been found to be the larval food plant for things like the yellow barred brindle the common quaker and even the humongous privet hawk moth too oh a really juicy moth yeah yeah it's, oh, oh, I oh we, well we met one uh was it last year now it was last year wasn't it that's in right our, in yeah. our ex next door neighbor's garden it is huge yeah it's the size of our palm huge. wasn't it yes I, th- but that's really interesting that they will also go for viburnum opulus leaves yeah despite being called the privet mm. hawk moth they actually will feed from quite a few species as the caterpillar stage cool have to look out for that so if you want to get yourself one of these, they are a really, really good value shrub, both for wildlife, but also just for you, because they give interest right through the year. Indeed. And I actually think that they're really underutilised, actually. We have put a couple in, but I think on knowing how good they are for wildlife, I'm definitely encouraged to put more in. But as you said, you, there are very few things that you can get such a huge range of benefit from so with the the flower like you say the autumn color we all think of aces you know japanese aces and maples oh, yeah, yeah. but they don't really have they don't have the flowers in the same way as this so i think it's a really fantastic plant for any garden yeah and because it can be grown in a hedge mm. but also as a freestanding shrub it's really versatile there's loads of places that you can actually fit it in and it's very forgiving as well when you prune it yeah, very. Yeah, I'll come on to that. But it really is. Uh, yeah, you can be as hard as you like with it. Yeah, if we've convinced you, then you need to know where in your garden you'd want to put one. As for where they would suit, they do prefer to be on a neutral or an alkaline soil. Somewhere around a pH of about 6.5 and above should be okay. So if you can get yourself a soil pH test, and if you that that actually just is good advice generally to know what pH your soil is. But the soil type, so whether it's clay or loam or sandy, doesn't matter too much. Although I would say naturally you find them in quite damp and moist places. So if you do have a very dry soil, a very free draining soil, you might find that some of the stems wilt in the summer. So if you do have a soil like that, then it will be something that you'll need to keep watered and and well mulched as well. Regarding sun and shade, they are found as a woodland plant and they will grow in really, really deep shade, actually. And in deep shade, their leaves will actually grow much larger. Mm, like the bramble. Yeah, yeah, very similar. But if you want them to flower well, they will need a bit of sun. So if you're after those flowers, and of course you need the flowers to get the fruit then I'd plant them somewhere with a bit of sun throughout the day, especially in the growing period in in spring and summer. And the last thing is, as I said earlier, they're not really found around the Mediterranean, even though they're found throughout Europe. So I would say that they don't seem to like that sort of coastal position. Maybe it's the salty winds that they don't enjoy. So if you're by the coast, maybe this is one to give a miss. Now, as Ellie said, once established, it's actually really, really low maintenance. If you can leave it to grow, you don't need to prune it. It's one of those ones where it can just be left to its own devices, basically, and it'll be absolutely fine and it will fruit and flower really well, even without pruning. But if the size of it getting to, you know, five metres tall and four metres across sounds a bit too big for you, then they can be pruned very easily. And you would do that in winter. You do that when it's dormant and all the leaves have fallen. And, you know, if you've got a shrub that gets too big, you can actually just cut the whole thing right down to the ground. Does it flower on one year old growth or does it flower on the growth of that year? 
it flowers early in the year. Yeah. Sort of June, July time. So I'm going to presume that it flowers on last year's growth. Okay. Yeah. So, so whenever it, you're pruning it, early. you can probably expect it to not flower in the fall or not flower very well in the next year yeah. after pruning. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And well, there's a way around that, which is the other way of pruning it is just to take a third of the oldest stems out each year, which means that if you if you did that on a rotation from the beginning, it means no stem is any older than three years old. So that's a really good way to keep the keep the shrub in check, basically, over time. While maintaining flowering yeah, and burying. Exactly. Now, to plant one, you've actually got three options. So you can grow the wild variety by seed. You can take a cutting or a layer, so you can propagate it that way. Or, of course, you can just go and buy one. Now, the seed is actually quite easy, but the seeds need two to three months of what we call stratification, cold stratification. So it just needs a cold period to break the dormancy that's actually inside the seed. And that's dead easy because you can collect the seed in autumn. You want to gently mash off that fleshy fruit on the outside. You can do it in a sieve or in a colander um, and you know rinse it off just to get the seed because actually that flesh will also inhibit germination. But once you've just got down to the seed, you then sow it into pots, lightly cover with compost and leave it outside because if it's outside, it will get that cold weather. And you just want to make sure it doesn't completely dry out. But then you just leave it and be a little bit patient, because then germination should come the following April. And in some of the tests that have been done, germination is somewhere around 50%, 50 to 60% generally. So definitely one, so more than one seed in a pot. So a few seeds in a pot, and then just when you know what has germinated, you can prick them out and pot them on later. Regarding propagation from a, an existing plant, like I said, they can be layered or propagated by the softwood or semi-hardwood cuttings. But as usual, we just don't have the time now to explain how to actually do that. So we will put links into the show notes to pages on the RHS, which will give you a really good description on how to go about that. But then finally, like I said, you can go out and buy one. Now, loads of suppliers sell either the wild plant, and if you're buying the wild plant, do make sure you get a UK sourced and grown one. Or there are cultivated varieties. But I want to give you a word of caution if you are growing them for wildlife regarding these varieties. One variety that is really commonly sold, and you see this in all the garden centres, is called roseum, or it's sometimes labelled as the snowball tree. This has been bred so the flowers look like big snowballs where the entire flower head is made of these much larger sterile white flowers. They've given up the fertile flowers in exchange for these larger white flowers, which makes them look absolutely stunning. But of course, if you've got no fertile flowers, then you're going to get no fruit. And it's also likely that there's going to be reduced amounts of nectar and probably no pollen either, which isn't very good for a lot of the beetles that do much of the pollination. So for wildlife, this snowball tree, the roseum variety, is probably not your best option. And there's another variety, which is a lovely yellow fruited variety. It's called xanthocarpum. But it's worth noting that as a general rule, if you're planting things for birds, yellow fruits aren't usually as attractive to birds as brighter red and orange yeah they just don't think they're ripe they see the color and they just assume that 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 fruit isn't ready for them to to eat so it won't taste as good yeah that's right and one thing to note with um, viburnum opulus is the fruit is taken quite late in the year anyway so yeah if you're specifically planting it for birds then maybe go for one of the red fruited varieties and of those then there's quite a few that you can go and look up on the rhs website but Two that I'll mention that have the Award of Garden merit are Compactum, which is actually a smaller variety, probably better for a, a small garden or is a freestanding shrub in a, in a mixed border. Or Knotcuts variety, which is much like the wild variety. Uh, it's a large size, but it's said to have particularly fine autumn colour. Beautiful. Well, hopefully we've encouraged some of you to plant some Viburnum opulus in your gardens. Thanks, Ben. Well, that was a fun-filled, mothy episode. We've been looking forward to doing this one. So, uh, yeah, I uh, hope it was very useful for everyone. And next episode, we have our interview with the incredible Helen Bostock. 
and she is Senior Horticultural Advisor for the RHS and she's basically an all-round wildlife aficionado so please do tune in for that. Yeah, we went and recorded the interview with her down in Wisley at the New Wildlife Garden, didn't we? More excuses for garden visits. Yep. And if you want to follow along with our reading for the next book club, we're currently loving a book all about the science of pollinators. And that is called Pollinators and Pollination by Professor Jeff Ollerton. And it's much easier to read than a scientific journal, but it's still absolutely jam-packed for the up-to-date science. Lots of facts and figures. And it's all about the role that pollinators play in our environment. And just in his introduction, he basically can't praise them enough and can't give them enough credit because we wouldn't be here without them, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a sciencey one. But if you want to get to the bottom of why they're important all in one book, then that's the one to buy. Yeah, it really is very good. And links of where to find that, along with more information about everything we've talked about today, can be found in our show notes so please do check them out so until the next time keep exploring your gardens bye bye